One of our values here is discovery. I just want you to just take a moment right now and be open-minded that there are depths of knowing God that you have yet to come to realize, to enter into, and there's always there's always another level of knowledge of God, but not just intellectual knowledge, like a deep, meaningful, intimate knowledge of God. So I just want to put that there. I want to pray, and then we're going to get into the sermon. So, Father, I pray right now that um, we would not come to you with pride and with arrogance, thinking that we've got you figured out, and we've got this world figured out, and we've got this life thing figured out, but we would come to you humbly, knowing that there is much more to you than meets the eye. There is much more to you than we have even seen a glimmer of. And so we pray now, God, that you would reveal more of who you are to us, that we would take a posture of discovery. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so today we're talking about mirrors, rainbows, and donkeys. Mirrors, rainbows, and donkeys. So, and, and I try really hard each week uh, it, to let the sermon stand alone, meaning if this is your first time here, you're going to be a follow along. If you've missed a few weeks, which why would you do that? But if you have, if you missed a few weeks, you can still follow along. And so in order to do that this week, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to bring you some background knowledge. I've got to basically bring you right up to the edge of our story of what has happened up until this point in the story of Noah and the ark and this great flood and then this great rainbow that appears for the first time. And so I'm just going to give you some key details. This is what's led us up to this point in the story. So God creates the world. And something interesting that we always miss is when God creates the world, he, he essentially pulls Eden up out of the waters to form this mountain where Eden is. It's like this mountain garden where God is. And something very special happens in Eden. There's an underground water stream. And there's this special water, it's a special water in this special underground water stream. And this water is very interesting because it interacts, it reacts to God, it reacts to where the, it is compared to God, meaning the closer this water is to God, the more at peace the water is. And the further this water gets from God, the more violent and chaotic the water becomes. And so here's what happens. There's this special water underneath the ground that begins to seep up from underneath the ground, and then God makes humanity, but here's how he does it. He takes that special water, along with the dust of the earth, forms it in the ground to this clay-like substance, and makes humanity. Now, here's what else happens. This water bubbles up, and it forms a river in Eden. And as this water forms up and forms a river in Eden, the river goes out of Eden and it forms into four rivers. And what happens to this water, which is fascinating, is the further this water coming out of Eden gets from Eden, the further it gets from God, the more chaotic this water becomes, the more violent the water becomes. That's why in the Bible, when you see chaotic waters, it's referring to things like death and chaos and destruction because it's violent waters that are far from God. And so, what's fascinating is that this water that reacts different depending how far or close it is to God, do you know what this water, this water, we're made of that same water. Meaning, 
that the closer we are to God, the more at peace we are. And the further we get from God, the more chaotic our lives become, the more destructive our lives become because we are like the same water that reacts with God. We're made of this same type of thing. And so the closer you are to God, the more at peace you are. So let me ask you this. We all want to know who we're made to become. The answer is right here. Go to God. And you become more at peace. You become more of who you're made to be. It's the more human you become. Now, here, here's what's going on. In Genesis 1 through 11, what it is, it's a picture. If you look at a broad picture of Genesis 1 through 11, do you know what it is? It's a picture of humanity running from God. Now, we're made from the same waters that react differently about how close or far you are from God, and we take off running from him. And we saw this last week, and so what humanity does is continue to run and run and run from God until they find themselves in the chaotic waters, this chaotic flood that has come. Yet, in the midst of that, there is one man, Noah. This man who has climbed up, he's our great hope, he's like a new Adam, and he has climbed up the mountain in a sense to come and be in the presence of God, to enjoy God, to know him in a way that's like, this is more satisfying than anything else I can do with my life than to simply just be with God, to walk with God. And so he dwelled with him, and he, he found the secret that so many of us are looking for, that the closer you are to God, the more at peace you are in your life. And so we fast forward, and Noah is on this ark by faith. He's boarded this ark, and he's escaped from this flood of destruction, and now Noah is looking for this dry land. Now he's looking for this dry land, he finds it. Now what is this dry land supposed to represent? Well, it's probably supposed to represent Eden. And so we see Noah arrive now at this mountain that's been pulled up out of the water. He arrives at Eden, he gets out of the water, and finds the place where heaven and earth are intersecting again. See, what happened is, Adam and Eve were in Eden where heaven and earth intersect and it got lost because of sin. Noah is the great hope of bringing heaven back to earth. The place where they intersect again. Now, Noah finds this place, but it's not fully Eden, but it's a hope of what could be. And as soon as he finds this mountain, he gets off of the boat, has this worship service because he's in awe of God, and now we arrive at our text. Okay, so here we go. So that's brought us right up to the edge of our story. Now here's our story. And I got quite a bit to read, so you just got to focus. Like, can you guys do that? You can focus, right? Yeah, I bet. Okay, here we go. Genesis 9, 1 through 17. And God said Noah, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, for his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by his blood shall be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you... 
Be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I will establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I made between you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. Here's the sign. I have set my bow, meaning a rainbow, in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The first thing we need to see, Noah gets off of the boat, and he worships God. As if to say he's in awe of all that God has just done for him in a way that he has, has this deep personal connection with God. He's discovering God. He's experiencing God in the joy of knowing him. And it's the same way that Adam and Eve walked in the garden and knew God, though Noah probably didn't have that kind of intimacy, but he got to it. He found the intersection of heaven and earth, and he went there, and he experienced God. And then, look what happened. So, so go back. Genesis 2, Adam and Eve are with God, and God says, Adam and Eve, I've got something very important for you. I want you to do something. And this is the reason that you're, this is your purpose in life. It says, be fruitful, multiply, right? Humans are good at that. Also, care for the earth. Maybe we're not so great at that. Have dominion, meaning we are like kings over the earth meant to care for it and all the people in it. God is the greater king and we are the king underneath him operating under his rule and reign. Then we go back to Genesis 1. It says essentially the same thing except you're given a title. The title that you're given and all of humanity is given is the image of God. It's essentially saying the same thing. God is the king and we're meant to reflect the king out to the world so then we in a sense become like kings and queens. Now, what's interesting is everything that God told Adam and Eve, he's telling Noah right here. Our series is called new beginnings. This is the new beginning. This is the start over, you might say. This is humanity has fully messed up, but here, here is our next new beginning. Now, in order for you to understand this new beginning for your life and for humanity, you need to understand this phrase, the image of God. Now, the best way to understand it is to understand that humanity, that you, you are meant well, this way. Think about it like this. You are like a living, breathing mirror. 
meaning a mirror who's like come to life, meaning a mirror that has a soul and a being and, and substance to it, reality to it, that's life to it. And so you want to know the essence of who you are. The essence of who you are is found in this question. What defines a mirror? Because you're a mirror. So what defines a mirror? Whatever is standing in front of the mirror. That means whatever is most important to you in your life, whatever is your greatest treasure in life, whatever is that thing that you live for, that is what defines you because you're a mirror. You have to face something. And so that's what you're facing. That's where you go. You go to that thing that you treasure to tell if you're worthy or not, to tell if you have value, to tell you if you're grand or not, to tell you if you're beautiful. In other words... You're trying to figure out if you're something special. And you're trying to figure it out by going to some treasure that you have in your life. You're trying to say to this treasure, am I worthy? Am I worth this? And, and maybe some of you are saying, ah, no, no. I define if I'm worthy. I define if I'm valuable. I'm not going to let God tell me that. And I'm not going to let anybody else tell me that. I'm going to say what's true about me. This is up to me to say this. And I just say, don't, don't be so ridiculous. I mean, think about this. If you are saying, I define myself, I'm, a, I'm like a mirror, and whatever I treasure most is what defines me, and so I'm saying, I define me, then that means you treasure yourself the most, which we could admit is a bit arrogant and a bit selfish, and here's what it ends up leading down to. It leads down this road where you keep saying who you are to yourself and your value, but you never actually believe yourself. Because you need someone more wonderful than yourself to tell you that you're valuable. You need someone more wonderful than you to tell you that you're worth it. And that is what you're looking for. And that's found in God alone. To be made in the image of God is to not let anybody tell you who you are and what your worth is but God. Did you hear that? You're not letting anybody tell you who you are and what your worth is but God. That's what it be, means to be made in his image. It's to, it's to not, so you workaholics, it's not to find your value in your work. It's not to find your value in what people say about you. It's not to find your value in how successful you are or what you accomplish or if you're a hard worker or if you're not a hard worker. The successful person that's made in the image of God refuses to define themselves based on their success. And the failure that's made in the image of God refuses to define him or herself based off of their failures. There's a consistency, there's a steadiness when you have been, when you have been made into the image of God, meaning when you have found God to be your treasure and he says what you should think about you, there's a consistency that's brought. You stop letting the world tell you what you should think about you. You should stop letting yourself tell you what you should think about you. You stop letting your accomplishments tell you, but you let God tell you. We have to treasure something. And whatever it is that we pick to treasure will be what defines you. And any ultimate treasure that isn't God will lead you down a road to destruction. You'll ruin your life. And whatever you make your great treasure, it tells you what to do with your life. We see God say to Noah, who's made himself into God's image by worshiping God, 
He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, have dominion over it. Noah has just been recrowned. Humanity has just been recrowned with the calling that it was originally given, that we were originally given. When we make God our greatest treasure, he teaches us how to live. Otherwise, something else that you treasure more than him will always teach you what to do with your life. And your main job, what we see here, your main job is not to be a teacher. It's not to be a firefighter. It's not to be a business owner. It's not to be whatever your job is. That is not your main job in life. That is an avenue through which you accomplish the reason God made you, the, the purpose that he gave you in your life. And this is absolutely a game changer for how we approach life. Essentially what this means is your job as the image of God is to take whatever avenue God has brought you down and care for the earth and the people in it. It's to bring his kingdom. It's to cultivate it's to build like up this society by, by just the world around you, just by investing in the world around you, loving the world around you, caring for the world around you, and the people in it in your life. And it's to take any... See, it, it means you stop living for money and for success, and you start saying, whatever money I have and whatever success I have, how can I use this as leverage to bring God's kingdom? How can I use this as leverage to care for the people in my life? This here is humanity's new beginning. In this commission that we see God give Noah, he gives us the same commission. This is the start over. So just think about this in your life. This is the start over for all of you who have ruined your lives. All of us who have ruined our lives. For all of us who have been ignoring God. This is the start over to say, God, I've forgotten that you are my great treasure. For all of us who have made something else, made our lives into the image of something other than God, this is the great start over. This is the new beginning. See, God has wiped away your sin through the flood. You say, well, wait, hold on. I thought that the flood was there to wipe away all the sinners. I thought that the flood was there to wipe away everybody has done something wrong. I never said that, and the Bible never said that. You just thought that. Actually, the flood does not wipe away all the sinners. Noah is a sinner. The difference between Noah and everybody else that walked the earth is that Noah had faith that God would give forgiveness in the midst of his sin. That's why he boarded the ark. We see in the story that anybody who turns to God in the midst of the flood turns and boards the ark by turning to God that they are saved from the floodwaters and they are preserved. The flood be and here's what happens now, because we saw this last week, that Jesus becomes like the underbelly of the boat and as judgment is hitting us, we're in the boat and Jesus is shielding us. But what else happens is this, because God's judgment doesn't destroy us, what it ends up doing is it ends up changing us. It washes our sin clean from us because he is shielding us. So therefore now whenever the water hits the underbelly of us, it's just washing us clean like soap. 
And then the flood carries us where? It carries us to a place. Where does it carry us? Where is the flood carrying us if we're boarding the ark? It carries us back to Eden. It carries us to the place where heaven and earth intersect and we can come into the presence of God and know him and love him and experience him as the great treasure. Not just some God that's far off and distant, but a God who actually gives us the pleasure that we long for. Don't waste your life. And don't waste what God has done for you. He's done everything. He has gone to the greatest lengths possible to bring you to this intersection of heaven and earth, to make it available to you. And you have now this new power to live in a completely new way at this intersection because it's heaven coming down to the earth, so you have the power to live the way now that God has called you to live. And you're going to mess up, but you have another new beginning. And you're going to mess up, but you have another new beginning. Don't waste your life. My hope is that every one of you here will leave here determined to live into a new beginning and you become passionate about living the way God's called you to live and you become passionate about people and loving them like they need to be loved. And right now, the thing that you should be asking yourself is how is this actually possible? That, I mean, can God just so easily forgive you? That's what you should be asking yourself right now. Can, I mean, can he just forgive you? Is this happening to you? Can I just get this new beginning every time I turn back to God? Yes, I do something horrible, and then I turn back to God, and I get this new beginning. Is that something that's true for me? And the answer is yes. But it is very costly. Did someone say no? That was awesome. Yes, Emma, the answer is yes. It is yes. It is yes. Here's why. The rainbow. It is very, very costly to God to forgive you. He can't just forgive you. It is very, very costly. And my guess is that you have been looking at rainbows your whole life not realizing what you're actually looking at. The rainbow is about a promise from God. She's like, he talked back to me. I got to get out of here. <laughs> the rainbow is about a promise, but it's a covenantal promise. I mean, you see that word covenant when we were reading that. A covenant means a promise that cannot be broken. It is sealed, unbreakable. So the question is, the promise is that God will never flood the earth again. But now, again, we have to ask this question. If God is just, like if he is just and he must do away with everything that's evil, everything that's wrong, everything that's a glimmer of sin, if he must do away with it, how can he just forgive us and turn a blind eye to our sin, to evil and to the destruction of humanity? How can he just turn away from this? How is it that no matter what you do or don't do, God is going to love you the same and he's going to accept you the same through faith. How is that possible? The answer is found in the rainbow. And actually the translation, our translation is correct, but what a lot of Bibles will translate this as rainbow, but that was not the word that God gave this. He gave the word the bow. 
It is about a rainbow, but he called it the bow. Now, it's incredibly significant because this imagery is not pretty imagery. Though a rainbow is beautiful, it is not meant to be something so beautiful, though it is at the same time. It's a very violent image. Because at that time, the primary instrument for war was a bow and arrow. And when the floods came, it's a picture of God having the bow bent towards all sin, all, dis- all evil. God is pointing the bow down in the flood towards the earth, and he's letting the arrows go. But now look at which way the bow is pointed. Up. It's not pointed down anymore, it's pointed up. Now, every single sin, an arrow is released. I mean, this is, this is understanding like, God must always be wrathful towards sin because it is the right and it is the perfect response to evil, to sin. It is the one thing, well, it's something, it, it is something God has to do because God is perfect and he is right. But out of love for you, he bends the bow a different way. Which way is it pointed up? But is it just Are these arrows just being shot into oblivion nowhere? No. Justice must be paid. So where do the arrows go? Right into the heart of God. He has made you his treasure. And he points his wrath for your sin away from you towards himself. That is God's unbreakable promise. That if we sin, his wrath will be pointed back up at himself. And that fulfillment of this promise of the rainbow, the fulfillment of it is found right at the cross. So what we see on the cross is the wrath of God. Listen, the wrath of God, (laughs) the wrath of God fully satisfied. And this is where Jesus comes in to the picture, where he brings peace. Now, today's Palm Sunday, like we talked about earlier. And it's likely that after today, not only will you not look at a rainbow the same way, but it's likely that you're not going to look at a donkey the same way again either. And here's why. God is a God who brings peace but he's also a God who brings war against sin and death. And so when a king at this time, when a king rode into battle, the king rode in on a horse to do battle. But in this time, if a king rode into a battle, if he, the battle was about to start and the king rode in and instead of riding in on a horse, he rode in on a donkey. Do you know what that meant? It meant he has come for peace. It means he has come not to bring war against those people he's riding towards, but it means that he's come to bring peace. And that is the message that Jesus is bringing. When he he rides in on that donkey, he's saying, I am the king who has come to bring peace to the world. Only through me. See, Jesus rides that... (laughs) That was going to sound funny. I had to stop myself. Um, I don't know if you heard where that was going, but um, okay. (laughs) How do I say this now? 
So Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and he happens to be on a donkey. There we go. And as he rides in, um, he rides right up into the flood. He rides right up into the evil of this world, and he says, do your worst. Do your worst to me. Comes in peace, but says, do your worst. And so the rulers of this world take him and put him on the cross. But the real suffering that Jesus goes through is not from a whip that has metal grips on the end of it that rip off his flesh. And it's not from nails that have pierced through his wrists so they, nails can hold his, between his bones and hold him up on the cross and his pierced hands. And it's not because, the real suffering is not because when you're hanging somewhere like that, you have to take weight off of you to take a breath because your weight feels, it's like hitting your lungs and so you have to take weight off. And so he has to pull up on his wrists that have been pierced and on his hands and still, that is not the real suffering that he goes through. The real suffering that Jesus experiences is when the bow is bent and all of the wrath that God has for sin, the arrows are unleashed upon him, upon the cross, for our sins. The bow is bent, but not towards you but towards your Savior, towards your God on the cross. Have you become bored of God? You're not looking at him if you are. Do you feel unloved in your life? You are the image of God. If you will just look at him and see what he has done for you, you will see that there is no way that you could feel unloved in your life if you have a God, the God, who has done this for you. And if you're saying to yourself, yeah, but I really want the love of somebody and I'm not getting it, but I'm getting it from God, but that's not enough, then you don't know you're not looking at God anymore. You're looking at something else. You've made something else your great treasure above God. Look at him. He will satisfy the needs of your heart. Are you keeping away from God because you have guilt and shame in your life? All the guilt, all the shame that you could possibly experience has already been handled upon the cross. You've been forgiven. Don't you dare let your sin and guilt and shame keep you from God. Let it drive you to the God of the cross where you meet him and you see how much he treasures you and you say, God, I love you for this. Let's just go spend some time together. And when you walk through suffering, you can look at your God who has suffered as well. And he has been swallowed up by the floods of this suffering so that, yeah, you're going to suffer in this life, but it doesn't swallow you up. He has risen up out of the grave, meaning now the ark is standing above the water and he's bringing you to the mountain of Eden. So suffering does not win. 
You can rest also knowing that you have a God who's fighting for you and is not abandoning you. And if you think, man, I feel abandoned from God, where is he right now? Listen, God does not go through the lengths that he goes through to win you back to himself for him to just abandon you. In the midst of the storms of this life, there is always a rainbow on the other side, something that we have over our doorway now. It says, be patient in tribulation, meaning the bow is coming, and we might not be experiencing it right now. We might be in the flood, but the bow is coming. It's a promise from God, and we just got to be patient in the midst of the tribulation, in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the pain that we're going through. Keep looking for the dry land. And if you have really discovered God, you realize that you could face anything. Because he is with you, he is a God of peace, yet he is also the God of war against sin and death, and he is fighting for you, and that gives you peace. Let every storm of life drive you onto the ark by faith, and let that ark bring you to God, where you experience the pleasures of knowing him, where you experience the place where heaven and earth are intersecting again. Let sin be something you turn away from so you can turn towards God. And be the image of God again and help change the world around you by pointing the world to the ark that you can enter into, pointing the world to the mountain garden of God where heaven and earth are intersecting again. Let the colors of the bow remind you that the wrath of God has been satisfied and you can now just be at peace. And you don't have to have worry, but you can have freedom. And you don't, and, and now, 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 you can stop wasting your life chasing around things that you don't need to chase. Make God your treasure and he'll teach you what it means to have a meaningful life. And he'll show you always through the rainbow what you mean to him. Father, we ask now that the beauty and the violence of the bow would make our hearts move towards you. That whatever is stopping us from moving to you, whatever is keeping us in our seats, instead of leaping to you with joy and worship, God, we pray that you would steal us away from that thing that's keeping us sitting in our seats and it would, would compel us to move towards you by faith. God, pull us in. Pull us in. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.